I definitely don't think you need to do a postgraduate training program. I really think that depends on the person and their comfort level and what they're kind of looking to do with their career. But I would say the majority of our PAs and nurse practitioners in our emergency department did not do a postgraduate training program and they're phenomenal providers. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. Our guest today is Ms. Amanda Gallagher, Emergency Medicine Physician Assistant. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have your particular perspective. As I said, you know, our job here is to share and inform. And I want folks to develop their own opinions, perspectives on their own But I think the best way to do that is to hear everybody's perspectives. And you certainly bring a unique perspective. So with that, would you please tell us a little bit about what your current role is? Yeah. So as you've already mentioned, I'm an emergency medicine PA. I work at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and I'm lucky enough to be faculty there. And probably about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, I became the postgraduate training director for our EMPA program. For lack of better words, we're basically a PA residency in emergency medicine at my university. Awesome. And this is the unique perspective that I'd like our audience to hear about. Amanda, could you please give us a brief story of your journey to becoming an EM leader? I think it's important for folks from that find themselves in any station of their career, PA student, brand new grad, near new grad, middle of the road, or experience like yourself to say, how did she get to be where she was? What drew her to this? What was her experience? The one thing that we all share in common is we all fought and scrapped to get into PA school. Then when we were in PA school, we probably dreaded, how long is this going to go on? When are they going to let us out? Then when we first got out, we probably had in common, hey, they shouldn't have let us out (laughs) so quickly. There's still so much to learn. And from there, people went different ways. Would you please share with our audience your journey to becoming an EM leader? Yeah, so I started off in emergency medicine. I got my EMT license when I was 18 and was going to be a paramedic and work on the streets for the rest of my life. And that's what I was going to do. And I think like a lot of us, when we were that young, that's a really hard career. And I have a ton of respect for people who retire out of EMS in the street. But I think I quickly realized that that wasn't going to be my lifelong goal and to be in paramedic in the field. And I became an ER tech and started kind of seeing what the in-hospital environment was like. And I met PAs and nurse practitioners working in our emergency department and thought like, that looks like what I want to do. So I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in social work, which I joke sometimes is more helpful in emergency medicine than my actual PA degree. And 
ended up going to PA school at the University of New Mexico, started in 2014 and graduated in 2016. And I'd been in the emergency department for quite a while as a tech and thought, I don't know if I'm going to go back into EM, maybe I'll go to something else. I strangely loved my family medicine rotation. I think it had somewhat to do with the clinic that I was in, but I really enjoyed it. Thought maybe I'll go into emergency medicine. But one of my former coworkers, Clint Callen, who's an emergency medicine PA, works here in New Mexico, but also in Washington State now, was starting an emergency medicine PA postgraduate training program. And him and our medical director, GMB Sark, were both like, you should come to our program. Come on back to the ER and kind of sucked me in. So um, myself and another co-resident were their guinea pigs for their first year, which is how I ended up going back to the emergency department. I was really fortunate to get hired on as faculty straight out of my residency and worked there a couple of years, ended up being the co-director for the program with Clint. And then eventually he passed the torch over to me. And so now I'm the director of the program. That's how I got there. I think in a lot of ways, it's a lot of who you know. Often networking is really important, I think, in this business. I've been going to the SEMPA conference, Society of Emergency Medicine PA every year, and have been really lucky just to meet lots of people and be able to mentor. And so I think that was really helpful in helping me get to where I am. I do think I worked really hard to get where I'm at, but I also think that I definitely had some luck in the in the situation. That's the truth. Hard work and a sprinkle of luck does not hurt. Before we move on to our, our, our main topic, uh, again, I, I, I do think not only is your story fascinating, but I think it's, it's worthy to pause just for a quick second and highlight some of the challenges and the blessings of the pathway of a PA. And I suspect that's similar pathway for nurse practitioners. But uh, since you're a PA, I'll, I'll use your life story. What differentiates us from physicians is, you know, physicians decide early on, I'm going to get an undergraduate degree in somewhere in the sciences, and I'm going to go on to medical school, and they do four years of medical school. They do an intern year, and they decide on their fellowship in the case of emergency medicine. They do an emergency medicine residency, and then out they go on the market. You just highlighted a good example of really how diverse the different pathways are of PAs all over the country to go from Amanda at home to Amanda treating emergency medicine patients and also becoming a leader in emergency medicine. I think you would agree there was no blueprint that you looked up at the library and said, Amanda, just follow this blueprint and you'll get to where you are right now. You would agree no blueprint existed, right? None, no. (laughs) Not only that, it's likely for our listeners that Amanda wrote a blueprint it doesn't have to be the only blueprint because, as I said, our history of being PAs is so wide and diverse that Amanda wrote one blueprint that may not be for everybody. But some people listening may be saying, that sounds like a real cool and bright, smart chick. I want to do what she did. And the fact that she did it tells me it's at least doable. So I, I just wanted to, to pause her because I do think that's what differentiates us from the pathway that that physicians take not one better than the other. And I think it also highlights that the pathway that we take is decorated with challenges and blessings along the way. Would you agree with that, Amanda? 100% agree, yeah. I think often PAs and nurse practitioners come with a little bit more diverse life experience, which I think can make us really valuable in the field coming with other perspectives and stuff where a lot of physicians, and I work with a lot of resident physicians and 
and clearly many of them didn't go straight into medical school and have had very diverse backgrounds as well. But I would say more of them than our specialty go from high school to an undergraduate and a science degree to medical school to residency to maybe fellowship. And that is a long, hard work, just a little bit different. Yep. So we'll move on to our our first main topic, historical changes of the PA and emergency medicine over the years. During my career, I was fortunate enough to receive really great training by emergency medicine physicians. I was so fortunate to be offered an EM position while I was still a PA student. I was offered that position by the same staffing company that held that contract in the ED where I was training as a student. And I still had like three months to graduate. And I thought, wow, this, this is awesome time being offered this. So immediately upon joining the team after I graduated, I could think of at least five emergency physicians who continued to mentor me closely and train me. And I can think of three senior PAs who mentored and trained me. And and that was led by the department lead uh, PA. Since then, I've been so fortunate to continue to develop and learn from a number of other emergency physicians. I believe there are more clinical changes for the modern EMPA than there ever was before. I'm certain that not all EMPAs are experiencing the optimal supervisory relationship for, for many different factors. I believe that there are multiple factors, like I said, for this. I've seen an increase, for example, in PAs in the workforce. It's kind of flooded the market. So that's a challenge. I've seen demands on emergency physicians grow considerably and disproportionately. So it makes it tough to throw more on their plate. I'm sure we have less than the ideal operational environments for the optimum supervisory experience. So with that background, in your experience, What changes have you seen over the years with the role of the EMPA in your time? Yeah, so I've been an EMPA for about six and a half years or so now. And I would say the biggest change I've seen, I guess I should preface by saying that I tend to be very spoiled. I work in a state that has a very big scope of practice for PAs. We also have a lot of lacks when it comes to supervising physician and whether and Do they need to be in the same building with you or do they need to do chart reviews and stuff like that? And so I would first say that I'm very spoiled in that situation where I'm not as constrained as some other states would be. I also work at a university who is really supportive of AVVs in general. And being a teaching hospital are really excited to teach everybody, whether that be my PA residents, the MD residents, new grads that we take into the emergency room who are just coming in as a brand new job and getting on the job training. I would say the biggest thing I've seen, especially over the last couple of years, is there's a lot of fear of PAs and nurse practitioners in our environment. There's a lot of fear that we're taking jobs away from doctors, that we're trying to kind of usurp their role. And I may have an unpopular opinion, but I think it's a team sport and we need to play on the same team. And I have no desire to be the doctor. I didn't go to medical school, but I have a desire to be a very valuable member of the team. And that's kind of, I feel like the relationship that my department tries to enhance between all of us. And I would say over the last couple of years, I feel like there's been a little bit of divide between us and them. And so I feel like the relationship between PAs and MDs over the last couple of years, I feel like I've become more strained And maybe that's just the perception that I'm getting from social media, letters put out by people who have strong opinions about these things, because it's always the people with the stronger opinions who say things first. (laughs) But 
you know, I think at my hospital, they've probably expanded our scope slightly. You know, we now get some trauma resuscitation unit shifts, which we had it in the past, which is really nice. We do it on an education day when we don't have residents. So it helps, number one, it helps our attendings manage the volume back there, but it also doesn't take any learning opportunities away from any MD residents, which I think it's always another fear. Having APPs in the emergency department is taking away other learning opportunities. So I feel like I'm not sure as much of a change as in, I assume there's some utilization change at some facilities and some community hospitals and stuff who are more RVU driven, who are trying to look for workforce where they can pay less and have more people. Fortunately, I haven't seen a lot of that, but I have, I do hear about like the fear of us versus them in this community. Yeah. Great comments. Uh, Things that I'd like to touch on. Not only do I agree, I'm always very cautious to say, hey, I don't want to speak for this person or that person, but I'm going to take a stab and say that I believe I speak for the overwhelming majority. When I say the overwhelming majority, if not 100.0, then 99.9999% of PAs that they would agree we want to be on the same team. We see ourselves as team members. We don't want to be the physician, (laughs) don't want that on us, and that we are hopeful that we can work on the same team and that nobody should fear anybody. You mentioned, you know, you're kind of spoiled by this good environment. I think you would agree, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'd like to hear from you, that though there are many similarities in ERs throughout the country, certain sites have different needs and different challenges. Would you agree with that? 100%, yeah. So some sites may, for whatever reason, decide we're going to let our PAs do X, Y, Z here while another site, maybe only an hour away, says, oh, we have different needs and different challenges. We have to let our PAs do X, Y, and Z as long as they're qualified to do those things. Does that sound fair, Amanda? Yeah, definitely sounds fair. And I work also at one of our sister ERs, which is more of a community emergency room feel. And we definitely have different needs there. I would say that I try to pick up I guess would be classically like fast track patients coming into the emergency department there to help move them out a lot quicker. Where when I'm working at the university hospital, although I would say a lot of the PAs do also try to pick up the low hanging fruit patients that we can get out of the emergency department quicker. We see a lot more high acuity patients there just because we have a lot more high acuity patients there. And would you agree? I've said this, you know, 20 years that I've practiced. If we agree that different sites have different challenges and different needs, then the best people that are qualified to identify those challenges and identify their needs are the people on the ground. Certainly the physician medical director, certainly the physicians that are going in there toiling every day, but also the EMNPs and PAs that are toiling every day, and also a good NP and PA leader. My point is the local folks on the ground know these are our challenges for us and therefore these are our needs. Would you agree that they're probably the best ones to make those decisions? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think an example would be like whenever you're building a new emergency department, there's always some kind of hiccup and, you know, it's like the wheelchairs with oxygen tanks don't fit through these doors and that's because the architect has never pushed a wheelchair. But they know the standard size of a door, just don't know that oxygen tanks kind of hang off the side a little bit. And I think that's the same kind of what you're talking about is that 
if you're not working in that department and seeing it from the clinical aspect, you don't really know the problems or really know how to fix them. Agreed. That's actually a very good example. Before we move on to the next question, I, I wanted to follow up on, on some of your comments from the last one. So you talked about this perception that may exist among physicians about PAs and MPs taking jobs, which is a whole uh, different topic. There was a lack of 550 open seats in the EM residency. I don't think we're taking their jobs. They, they can't fill those jobs. But just to give everybody a little bit of context, and again, I want to emphasize Every state is different, and within every state, every region or locale is different. But in Tennessee, one of the things that led to the expansion of the role of the PA in Tennessee, shoot, I think this was probably in the 70s, if, if not the 80s, is there was a big, big number of patients not being seen. Uh, Tennessee Medicaid had just been expanded and qualified a lot of people, but they weren't getting seen. So you have these PAs on the ground and they expanded practice to say, you know, here's a workforce who can see a lot of those people. Now, this is a little bit of apples and oranges because this was just in general. You know, hey, somebody see these patients because they can't get seen. And one thing that I've always thought that we brought to the fight, Amanda, we both agreed. And I went ahead and spoke for overwhelming majority of PAs saying we don't want to be physicians. We just want to be what we are, which is PAs. I think one thing that we bring to the fight is that we expand the footprint and the capability of a physician. When we work well on a team, we're creating access to care to folks who would otherwise have a horrible delay in seeing a provider or might never see a, a provider. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's a very fair statement. And I think there's, I would say in the emergency medicine PA community and talking to students coming out of school, I think there is this like, well, I'm going to go off and be an independent provider in a rural emergency department. And I think a new grad coming out of a program, I think we're, it's a disservice to send them out in that kind of environment. I think we're setting them up for failure because we don't have the residency of a doctor to give us the skills to kind of do that. And part of the reason I did a residency as a PA and part of the reason I'm a program director is I'm trying to make more valuable members of the team. And I don't think a PA residency is necessary. And I think we'll chat about that a little bit. But I want one, especially when I'm working in our community ER, where there's two attendings and myself, you know, if we get a car accident with three patients come in, I want them to know that I can manage that patient while they take care of the more critical patient that I know when I'm in over my head and I need more help and I know how to ask for help. And I want them to trust my skills to be able to manage the patient's airway while they put in a line in a cardiac arrest or for whatever reason, I want them to know that I have the knowledge and the skill base to be able to help them do a better job. I manage my own patients, but I also want us as a team to manage patients better. Couldn't have said that better myself. You hit it on the nose. We'll move on to our next topic. And you hinted on it a little bit. Pathways to satisfactory emergency competency. Currently, I see three pathways, EM postgraduate training, and that could be subdivided into academic institution-based or employer-based. The second bucket, EMCAQ, and the third bucket, EMOJT. Since the EMCAQ is not an EMCAQ academy, it's not a place where you go to gain knowledge. It really doesn't confer knowledge. All it does is slap a label on people like me that say, we acknowledge you have this knowledge. So then that really leaves the big, broad bucket of postgraduate training in either of those two subcategories, academic institution-based, employer-based, and the second category of EMOJT. Statistics tell us that 28% of PAs have earned a CAQ 
5.4 are have completed a postgraduate program. So that's a whole lot of people practicing actively with EMOJT over about 94, 95%. So let's first talk about the EM postgrad training. Then we'll discuss EMCAQ and EMOJT after that. Can you describe the differences between an academic-based EM postgraduate training program? And even among those, because I don't think that there's clear understanding from all PAs and even some physicians that someone says, hey, I've received a doctorate from University X and it's postgraduate training, and therefore I know more emergency medicine than I did before versus other ones. Can you explain the nuance of differences, please? Yeah, well, I will try my best. So I work in an academic center and my postgraduate training program is integrated in with our MD residency. So they start as essentially treated similar to an EM intern. They start with the same class. They do orientation together, which is a month that involves airway skills and just kind of learning the ropes of the hospital, charting, but they learn together. And then our program is 18 months long and they essentially complete a similar academic year to our MD interns. Uh, which includes a medical ICU, a surgical ICU, OB, toxicology, a month of ultrasound, anesthesia, orthopedics, our pediatric emergency department, a community ER month, and then a couple of electives. The rest are in emergency medicine. And so our goal is a lot of their training together because they're going to work together. You know, we understand that often they come with some not limitations, but less experience because the MD residents are coming in with much more clinical experience in their years of medical school than the PAs are. So often we work a little bit on patient presentations and differential diagnoses where the MDs have just had more time doing that. And they have a dedicated academic time every week where they also learn together in a more didactic, sometimes simulation roles. And so that's kind of what happens at a lot of academic centers. Not all academic centers integrate them in with their MD class like we do. During that orientation month, also all of our emergency medicine, our EMS fellows, our pediatric emergency medicine fellows, we have wilderness fellows and education fellows. They also all do this together because, again, train the other because you're going to work together. And I would say a lot of academic sites have more, have similar PA postgraduate training, residency, fellowships, whatever you want to call them, where they have off-service rotations and dedicated education time. Our interns get paid the same as each other. They you know, work the same shifts. They work the same hours. And so there's a lot of overlap in kind of those ways to try to keep things equitable between them. And I know I'm sure someone out there rolled their eyes and they're like, but they're not the same. No, but we're trying to give them similar training because they're going to work together. We specifically follow SEMPA's guidelines for procedures. And I know a lot of the other academic programs do as well. And so when they're done, they're able to essentially print out this list of procedures and things that they've completed. So if they're staying at the University of New Mexico, if they're moving on to another one, they can print it out and say, I did 45 intubations, 10 central lines, so many of whatever procedures, which I think can be really helpful when you're going to credential at another hospital. There are definitely some really fantastic private postgraduate training programs. So places where people come in and they, or a PA comes in, they make less than if they were just working on a job, but they have some rotations on other services or in other departments. 
Uh, they get dedicated education time. They get one-on-one mentorship. And I think those can be really valuable. I have heard in the past of other people who you know, kind of just take a lower pay cut to work just as much that after six months, then they're allowed to practice on a fuller scope of practice, but they're not getting any benefits of extra education, didactic time, rotations on other service. And to me, I think that's taking advantage of someone, you know, you could go get onto the job training and be on orientation for six months and get your full salary if you're not going to benefit in some other way. We justify paying our PAs essentially like almost half the amount they would get if they came in as a full-time PA because they only work about half time in the emergency department. The other half of the time they're working on other services. So we're able to kind of bill for them in that way and also then give them all these other extras that they wouldn't be getting if they were just doing on-the-job training. Sure. And in keeping with the podcast objective, simply to share and inform, that's all I want is I want to be able to share as much as possible with folks and help inform them and always let people make up their own decisions. So now that we know a little bit more about that information, tell us your thoughts about matching the right candidate for the right postgraduate experience. So when I say postgraduate experience, that's a really a vague umbrella. It's pretty much postgrad past PA school. So what's your experience? I learned on the job and developed myself in a really good department that way. I may have done that and went on to CAQ, or I may have gone to an employer-based uh, fellowship, or I may have gone to an academic-based fellowship. Tell us your thoughts about matching the right candidates for the right pathway. I guess when I think of matching candidates into our own program and people who I think would be a good fit, first off, I would say, at least a part of the reason I did one and the reason I think that I was a good fit and part of the reason that drew me to do that is I had worked in emergency medicine for almost 15 years as an EMT prior to going to PA school. And so I think there's a level of knowing what you don't know. And if you hadn't worked in medicine, hadn't worked in emergency medicine, wanting to have more skills like arterial lines, paracentesis, lumbar pumps, whatever it was, you may not know that you're going to have like an upward battle learning all of those on the job training. And I think I already kind of knew that information. And so I'd say a lot of people who apply to programs are people who've already worked in emergency medicine in some way. And our program, we've had a couple of people who've come from pararescue previously, so came with a very large skill set. And you would think those would be the people who wouldn't want that program. But I think there's a knowing what you don't know kind of going into things that draws people to wanting to get further education. Also, I definitely, we've had plenty of people in our program and talking to people around the country, other program directors, people coming directly out of school, especially those who maybe took a more traditional like med school route where they got an undergraduate degree in bioscience, went straight into PA school, and now they're coming out of PA school quite young without a lot of clinical experience behind them. They're drawn to these programs because they feel like they need more education, more feedback, more mentorship before they go on to their first job. And so I think that's another person who really value, is valuable to coming into these programs. We've had a couple people in our program who already had on-the-job training, who had been working in emergency medicine. One of our most recent graduates wanted to move to a more critical access hospital, coming from a community hospital in a much better resourced area. And so part of their reason for wanting to do the program was to gain more clinical experiences, have those ICU rotations, have the ultrasound training, 
and other things so that when they went to a more critical access hospital, they would be a more valuable member of their team. And so I think depending on where you're going to work, I think can be very beneficial. Sure. Before I pose the next question, so I want to put a disclaimer out for all the audience and for you, Amanda. My personal belief is that more education can never be a bad thing. More knowledge, education is a good thing. In 20 years, I don't think there may be out there. I've never run across a PA in emergency medicine, at least, that says, I've learned everything there is to know. I, I don't need to learn anymore. <laughs> Just if we want to be honest and we want to be humble up until our last breath, seeing emergency medicine patients will still feel that we never got to the finish line. I think that's kind of what pushes us to learn more. So more education is always good, never a bad thing. The second thing that I want to put a disclaimer on is I do believe, at least in these current times, I'm not sure that I can speak for 20 years from now, but in these current times, and certainly looking back at the past 20 years, that each individual has to find out what the right pathway is for them. Again, because we weren't fortunate to have like this monolithic pathway that was pre-structured uh, for us, like physician pathway journey was. As we mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, we came from all corners of the earth. We came through all kinds of personal and very distinct personal histories and journeys. So that's why it's even the follow-on experience after PA school remains diverse. Having said that, I do believe that in the past 20 years and in modern times, every individual has got to find a pathway that works for them, a pathway in which they'll be successful, they'll feel good about themselves, and everybody can benefit. Having said those things, considering that over 96% of practicing EMPAs right now are EMOJTPAs. Do you think that this pathway still produces some good EM clinicians for now? I do. Yeah. I, you know, in my PA class, there are several of us who went into emergency medicine. I'm the only one who did a postgraduate training program. I still work with a couple of them in our department. They're phenomenal clinicians and phenomenal providers. That being said, I do kind of what I mentioned before, I do work in an environment that is very education driven and all of our attendings, our senior residents, everybody is very excited to help uh, with on-the-job training. So I've seen more than one new grad PA in the emergency department and a senior resident says like, hey, I'm going to go do an arthrocentesis. Have you ever done one? Or, you know, the PA is saying, I have this knee I need to tap and I've never done this before. And, you know, the attending or senior resident or another APP is like, Sure, dude, I'll go with you. I'll help you. That's not a problem. So I definitely work in a supportive environment where if you're a new grad, you're really lucky to be in our, well, maybe not lucky. I think it's how it should be. But I think on-the-job training is great. I would say the biggest difference, so one of my classmates, who's also one of my close friends, and I both went into emergency medicine. I did the postgraduate training program. They went directly into a job and got on-the-job training. And I would say when I was completed with my 18 months, kind of looking at us together, I was a lot more comfortable with a lot of hands-on skills than they were. And I was definitely more comfortable with critically ill patients than they were because I had done months in the ICU, you know, seeing people, the same patient every day for a week or so. And, you know, that gives you a lot more comfort than you had previously. Certainly not comfortable, but definitely more comfort. But he was much more efficient at seeing patients quickly. He was more efficient at seeing definitely lower acuity patients where I remember the first patient I was really seeing on my own independently because during our postgraduate training program, you present all of your patients 
was a like a low speed motor vehicle accident. And there was part of me like, oh God, do I see paid them anyway? Like, oh, like, oh, you know, worried about missing more critical things where it, I feel like he was more comfortable with than I was from on the job training. So I think there are positives and negatives to both. I definitely don't think you need to do a postgraduate training program. I really think that depends on the person and their comfort level and what they're kind of looking to do with their career. But I would say the majority of our PAs and nurse practitioners in our emergency department did not do a postgraduate training program and they're phenomenal providers. So two things that I gleaned from your responses, it sounds like you described this like the second time you said this today. So I, I think that it's, it's very noteworthy. It sounds like you described the OJT people that you are uh, associated with. They have a really good experience, a really good setup with motivated people. So it sounds like you're describing there's an optimal environment for OJT pathway to flourish. And it really needs vested mentors and trainers in supervising physicians. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, definitely. I think that's really the only way that you can get the education you need. So totally agree because that's very similar to our training in year two of PA school. In year two of PA school, you know, my the best training, you know, I was so lucky. And these were all physicians and residents that I was learning from. So it's kind of like a throwback to that. Listen, if you get a motivated and a vested a physician or resident to teach a PA student or to teach a PA who's already graduated in emergency medicine, you can get some really great outcomes. So I think that's important because I think that's where our wide distribution of experiences is across the country. Though there may be, though OJT may be a good option, it, it really should be conditional on got to have some mandatory ingredients. And one of those is you have to have a supporting cast of supervising docs. And if you don't have that, back to a comment you made before, it really is a disservice then to the PA. And when we talk about having that necessary ingredient in good supervising docs that are engaged, sometimes they may not have the bandwidth, Amanda, because they're getting overwhelmed with their own patients. And so that's a matter for leadership, for that medical director or that lead NP or lead PA to take up with the medical director or the staffing company and say, hey, we, we have created a bad scenario here. We've got good intention docs, but they're overwhelmed. They do not have the bandwidth to provide this close supervision and training. We've got good, smart PAs and MPs, and they deserve a good learning experience. We've set them both up for failure. This is not a good recipe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, you know, talked to friends who've gone into emergency medicine in other locations, other states, other cities and stuff, and, you know, have relationships with physicians that seems more like if they go to them with a question that physician just kind of okay fine I'll just do it and they'll kind of just usurp that patient and kind of like we talked about I think that does a disservice for both of them you know where you're now putting more work on that physician who oftentimes in most emergency departments in our country there are plenty of patients to be seen you know you're just adding more work to their plates you also have not helped improve the clinical skills of this APP who probably, if you just sat down and had a little bit of education for a moment, could then manage that patient without coming to you for help and adding more to your plate. But I mean, not everyone likes to teach and that's not a crime. Uh, it just may not 
be the best person to be like a supervising physician of somebody who's just uninterested in helping expand and improve that person. Yep. And that's okay. I got so busy at the end of my full-time 20 year, like in the last year or two that I said, I cannot take any students because I did not want to do them a disservice. I was overwhelmed with some administrative duties. And I said, I'm the one that started the student program. And I'm telling you, I, I can't take any. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with it, but let's, let's just all get in the room and make some honest assessments and say, let's not do this here with these two people, but we might be able to do it with these two people. Going back to your last reply about advantages, disadvantages, and differences on, for example, using yourself and your friend. Um, so it sounds like if I was going to build a trauma center where a high number of patients were truly going to be high acuity and high critical, that was going to be the proportion. It sounds like I want Amanda Gallagher if I'm going to hire a PA for that. But it sounds like if I was going to open up a small rural ED, and I, ha- I actually know of a PA who just bought an ER in rural Tennessee, just PA just bought it, just to expand some practice, to get some people to see them. But it sounds like if I was going to buy a small place where I really wasn't going to be doing critical care, it seems like I'd like to have Amanda here, but I don't know if I could afford Amanda because that's like, she's like a Lamborghini of skills. And I don't need all those skills for here. And so I probably couldn't recruit her anyway, but I do need a solid good PA that can see patients and once in a while can jump in with some trauma. And and I'm not talking about independent practice. I'm talking about with the doc on the ground, like you mentioned before, hey doc, you got two, you're managing two traumas. Let me go handle this other one and let's collaborate. And let me, let me come and get you when I need you. It sounds like you're describing what we talked about before. Each ED has to decide for themselves, what are their challenges and what are their needs? And it sounds like they have a wide variety of options on the shelves to pick from. They can either pick an Amanda uh, Super Duper PA, or maybe they pick Omar Nava, who's not super duper like Amanda, but he can help out many EDs in, in certain areas. Is that a fair characterization, would you say? I mean, maybe a fair characterization, certainly at the beginning of the career, although I will say my friend and I still work together. And now that we've been there, you know, over six years in the same department, I now can manage patients a lot faster and see a lot more lower acuity patients than I could previously. And he has definitely gained a lot of the skills that I came out of my training program with that he, it took him just longer to get to that point, I think. So I, I would say yes and no. I would definitely say that someone coming out of a training program is probably, depending on their program, coming with some more higher acuity skills than someone who had gone, you know, who had gone into on-the-job training around the same time. But I would say definitely depending on the location that they're at, those skills definitely, I think, balance out over years. Yeah. And I guess just EDs have to figure out for themselves, what are my needs? And in 20 years of practice, 19 of those years, I was an employer. And when I knew that we were in a time and space where I could get a junior experience PA that I was going to form a cocoon over. I knew that you you mentioned this before. Hey, any ED in America, there's plenty of patients to be seen. There's plenty to be seen. I knew that I could shape their experience so that, okay, they're going to see mostly the low acuity in this junior phase as as I form this cocoon versus writing them off as a candidate and saying, oh, no, I I can only uh, hire Amandas. I can only hire Amandas. You know, there, there were times where I could say, I'm going to hire somebody for a specific need with the intention of developing along 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I think, I think that's really important. You know, like you said, emergency departments have very different needs depending on where you are. Some emergency departments have a lot more urgent care needs than high acuity needs and hiring someone, you know, whether that be a new graduate or someone who's been working for a long time, who's going to focus on that is important. Also, you know, we all know that the emergency department isn't a steady state. They definitely, depending on what time of the day, have different needs as well. So, you know, maybe just using example, my friend who can move patients faster and can manage a lot lower acuity much quicker than necessarily I could. Maybe they're hired for the seven to three shift and they move that meet during the day during that part. And they're going into that job knowing that that's what you're looking for. And maybe potentially myself, and I would not call myself the Lamborghini of PAs. <laughs> I would like to think that I have good skills, but I think I'm pretty, pretty middle of the road and happy to be there. But maybe you're hiring me for the you know, three to 11 shift because you know that during that time, the trauma bay tends to be really busy or the pods tend to be overflowing with higher acuity patients. And so you're bringing me in to help manage the pods while the attendings are in the trauma bay and or to be a backup to them in that situation. So I think there's definitely room for many of us with many different skill sets, even in the same department. Yep. Very good detail you offer that. Well, as you were saying that, I was also thinking about a scenario where you have single doc coverage at night. They may say, hey, if I don't have another doc to back me up, I need an Amanda at night. That's what I need. Joe or Tim might be better during the morning, but at night I need somebody with this kind of training that Amanda brings. So that's really good detail you offered. Amanda, we've seen PA, the PA profession in its inception, move from a terminal certificate to a certificate. That's how the PA training started. The terminal, you know, credential was a certificate to an associate's degree, to a bachelor's, and then they switched over to master's. If someone were to show me a crystal ball and say, Omar, the terminal degree is going to be a doctorate degree. That doesn't offend me. As I said at the beginning, more education is never bad. More education is always better. But now it becomes a practical matter about how that gets rolled out. As I said, over, uh, you know, 96% of practicing emergency medicine PAs are OJT trained. If someone were to say, how does a pathway look like if a crystal ball tells us in the future the terminal credential will be a, a postgraduate? You know, this is what you do. How do you see that pathway occur? I've often said, hey, that's something that's probably going to take like about 15 to 20 years only because the current people are in right now. And they, they're looking at 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. And what would you do with those folks? Would you wipe them out of the workforce? But again, I'm a novice. I'm going to defer to you to the expert. How would you see that pathway happening? Well, first of all, I, I kind of hope that our terminal degree doesn't become a doctorate program because I think, you know, I think the master's level program and then plus or minus some postgraduate training, I think we can be valuable members of the team at, at this level. And I think that's what our goal should be. I think going to a doctorate program maybe isn't going to take away that, but I think maybe deter some people from the profession who maybe were going in thinking like, oh, I really want to be a PA. Maybe I was a paramedic for so long, but now I have to get a doctorate degree. So that being said, I do think if that's the way it's going to go, and I won't be surprised if that's the way we go, I do think it is going to take at least a good 10 or 15 years to roll out, which I think it took probably close to a good 10 years before 
you know, the bachelor's programs really all upgraded. I don't know if upgraded is the right word, but changed to master's programs and, you know, for employers to start changing to requiring a master's degree over the bachelor's where you had really high valuable PAs working who then had to take extra education just to get the master's degree, which really wasn't helping them clinically because they had also already had really good on-the-job training. So I maybe I am, maybe I don't have a very popular opinion, but I don't feel like I need to be Dr. Gallagher. And I think it's, so I think there's definitely some, I think it's a little disingenuine to like introduce yourself to a patient as like, hi, my name is Dr. Gallagher. I'll be your PA today. I think in the, definitely in the clinical setting, you know, I think it's very different in the academic setting. So if you're giving a lecture to a group and you're introducing yourself because you have a doctorate, I think that's great, but I don't think it's necessary for the clinical setting. I'm not sure. I think I have an unpopular opinion. <laughs> well, you and I will have a drink together and we'll let people throw stones at us. I, I have the stones. I have to take my hat off to anybody who's earned a doctorate. Ton of respect for me you're always going to get. I share your opinion because if I go to work in emergency medicine, I'm the benefactor of a good life better than I deserve and a good working experience and a good career. But the number one consumer of, of my practice is the patient, not my ego. And if the patient is my focus, I don't need to confuse the patient with saying, hey, I'm, I'm Dr. Omar Nava, your PA. I want physicians to earn the respect that they've had. And I want my patient to be unconfused about who's treating them. And I have, I'm quite proud to say I'm a PA. So it's not like something I want to hide. That's, that's a moniker I'm, I'm glad to hold. The three obstacles that I see about ever transitioning into something that requires more is there is a cultural component. I think you touched on it briefly. Some folks say, hey, it's not doing anything more for me. Am I not good enough? Number two, there's a cost component if there's extra education. And now I see kids come out with about $100,000 uh, debt or so. And I can't imagine what that was like. I was so fortunate. And number three, they have to delay their career to earn the money that they would otherwise make. I'm not saying these things make it insurmountable. All I'm pointing out is these are three obstacles when a change is made. And the last quick anecdote I'd like to share, I remember practicing in school as they were making or practicing just after I'd graduated and they were changing from bachelor's to master's. And I'd met up with a physician who his wife was going to the same school, but she was getting her PA training. And he was kind of upset because they had switched over to a master's. And I said, well, what's the difference? He said, they're charging me more tuition and she has to write a paper. It's the only difference. We're not teaching her anything clinically more. You know, that, that goes to what you said before. So again, obstacles, I'm not saying insurmountable, but these are things that make it tough. Amanda, as we come to a close here, a couple of questions we'd like to ask all of our guests. What book or movie would you recommend to our audience? It doesn't have to have anything to do with medicine or ER, just any book or movie that you would recommend to your audience? So it actually has to do a little bit with medicine. But actually, when I went to the SEMPA conference, I was talking to one of the rabies vaccine or rabies toxin group. And we were chatting about things. And I said something about the book Rabid. And everybody I was with there, no one had read this book. And so there's a book called Rabid. And it is by Monica Murphy and Bill Wasik, but it has a lot to do with the like cultural and how a lot of probably myths and legends were born out of people with rabies uh, throughout the centuries. And so I just, I thought it was a fascinating book. I couldn't put it down. It was, I highly recommend it. Do you pique my interest? I know what I'm doing this weekend. It's a great audio book too. 
I think I do better with audio because I'm so busy. That's awesome. That's, I'm going to I'm going to take that up this weekend. Also, as we come to close here, what general advice would you give to all new grad PAs and junior emergency medicine PAs and NPs regarding what steps they should take now and in the future? I would say definitely, you know, be your advocate. You have to look out for yourself. Make sure you're getting good on-the-job training if that's the route you're going to. If you're going to do a postgraduate program, make sure that you, you are being valued as a member of that team and that you are getting what you're hoping to get out of the relationship you're putting yourself into, I would say is really important. And my other piece of advice is never be afraid to ask for help and to work really hard on knowing what you don't know, which I know is a hard thing to like wrap your head around. But if you know when you're over your head, when to reach out for help, I think that really fosters a good relationship with your physician that you work with because they know, oh, well, if Amanda goes to see this patient in the room and something goes wrong, well, I know she's going to come and get me. So I think never be afraid to reach out, recognize when you're over your head. And I think that fosters good relationships. Totally agree. Who would you recommend we interview next? So I noticed you mentioned Tim in your last newsletter, and he actually is one of my good friends and a mentor and someone who's been really influential to me would be Terry Mize. And I think he would be a great person to interview as somebody who has, I joke about him being in PA emergency medicine since its inception. He was a founding member of SEMPA. And um, I like to give him grief about being in emergency medicine since like 1742. But <laughs> I think he's just a wealth of knowledge and just a really valuable person to chat about EM with. Awesome. How can folks reach you if they'd like to? People can reach out to me. I'm happy with that. Probably email would be the best way. You can also send me a message on LinkedIn, which you can find just by my name, Amanda Gallagher. And I would say email is definitely probably the best way to get in touch with me. Okay. No, that's great. Folks, we've been listening to our guest, Amanda Gallagher. I want to thank you very much, Amanda, for joining us today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. And I'd like to thank our podcast producers, a great team at Airfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you all, the clinician. For over 20 years, I've worked with you. I've learned from you. I know the sacrifices you make. And I know some of the challenges you face. More importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at our next episode. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.